Be seated. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Joel chapter 2. As we continue our studies in the Minor Prophets, Joel 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this evening. I'll begin reading at verse 12 to verse 17. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he, he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we know that our sin does deserve great punishment. We know that our sin deserves everlasting punishment. Yet we are thankful that you are the God who gives a way of salvation in another. And we are thankful that that is in Christ Jesus. We are thankful for the message of hope that is found in the gospel. We are thankful for the gift of repentance that you show people their sins. We're thankful for the gift of faith that you cause people to turn from their idols to Christ Jesus and to believe upon him and find everlasting life in him. And there are many other blessings that you've given to us as well and covenant graces that you've given to us as well. But we're thankful for repentance. We are thankful for faith. And we are thankful for the clarity that one day Christ shall come again. And so we ask and pray that we would have a sense of urgency. We ask and pray that we would not be complacent. So often, O oh Lord, even as Christians, we can be complacent in our sins. And we know that those who are not in Christ Jesus are quite content in their sins. But we pray that they would be gripped with this reality tonight that one day Christ shall come again, and that day is very soon. And so may there be a sense of urgency uh, among us tonight as we come and consider your word, and we are thankful for that message of hope that is given even in times of great distress. And so we are thankful we can call out to you, and we ask and pray to you now that you would help us by your spirit to understand further what is going on in the scriptures Help us to understand uh, what you have for us this night as we come and consider the prophet Joel, and we pray that you be with us by your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the idea of complacency has come up a lot in our studies in Judges on Wednesday, uh, Wednesdays, especially during the time of Samson. Uh, the people of God grew complacent. They were quite fine being under the Philistines. We see that in that narrative. Uh, so often in the judges, we see that the people cry out to God in pain. Uh, but with Samson, they don't. With Samson, they don't cry out. With Samson, they're just, uh, during Samson time, they're just quite fine uh, being under the Philistines. They've grown happy in their sins. And God was pleased to send a deliverer anyway. Well, the opposite of complacency is urgency. 
And that's what we see here tonight in the prophet Joel. I've heard the term urgency a lot when I was playing hockey, and it's usually when we were behind, it's usually when we were losing, and time was running out before we could win the game, so there was that sense of urgency. The game was going to end, so we had to try and push, 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 and perhaps the team that's leading grows a little bit complacent, and maybe we could have uh, caught them. So there, this term urgency was used a lot during my playing days, and this term urgency is very much in view here with what we see in verses 12 through 17. Israel's impending end is near. Israel's end is close. Babylon is close. 586 is when Israel will go into captivity, when the southern kingdom specifically will go into captivity. And so what can the people do in light of this? What can the people do in light of the fact that their end is near? Well, Joel tells us what they must do. There's this urgency in light of the coming day of the Lord. It is imminent. What will they do? And we could say by way of typology, there is going to be a day of the Lord when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. What will you do? Have you believed on Christ? Have you looked to him? Have you repented and turned to the true and living God? That day is close. And I do think with respect to the prophet Joel in the historical setting, I do think it is pre-exile. I do think it is post-722 BC when the northern kingdom is taken by Assyria. And so it's during the southern kingdom we see the language of Judah and Jerusalem, the house of the Lord. Those things seem to be in operation. So it's very close to that day. It's very close to that time where Israel shall be uh, uh, brought, uh, taken into captivity because they violated the covenant. God entered into a covenant with Israel, a covenant of works concerning life in the land. We see this fleshed out in full in the book of Deuteronomy. They failed to keep it, and so God is now going to vomit them out of the land by way of Babylon. So their day is near, and God has warned them. God has warned them. God has told them about their sins. God has sent prophets who've said, you're idolatrous, you're sinful, but not only that, here is where your sin is going to lead. And certainly we've seen that in the prophet Joel. The emphasis on Joel is the punishment sin deserves. So he warns about destruction, but even uh, with that, he has this call to repentance, and especially the latter part of Joel deals with the hope of refreshment as well. So key themes we've already seen will come up again today, day of the Lord, restoration, repentance, God's mercy, all in light of or all connected to disasters. There is that immediate disaster of the locusts, which we see in chapter one. Then there's the impending disaster of Babylon, of the army that is going to come and invade. And then thankfully, the latter part of Joel deals with the answers to those problems. But we're still really with that impending disaster, with Babylon is near. Babylon is close. So what can the people do? Well, there is a God who is merciful and gracious, and the people can call out to him. Now, I think the problem is very clear. It is when there is no urgency. Complacency happens when people don't realize how serious the situation is. You hear this with young people a lot. Well, I'll think about religious things when I'm a bit closer to my death. I'll think about religious things when I'm a little bit older. They don't see the urgency of the situation. Sin is serious. Sin's result is serious. And we need to show people and we need to preach the bad news so then we can preach the good news as well. There is this utility 
about preaching what sin deserves, namely impending destruction, namely everlasting destruction against, because of sin against an everlasting God. So we preach the bad news, but there is good news, that there is the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is hope because God is a gracious God, and sinners who flee the wrath to come in Christ Jesus shall have everlasting life. And so in Joel 2, verses 12 through 17, the terror of the day of the Lord leads to the urgent call to repentance. So the terror of the day leads to the main theme, which is this urgent call to repent, which is what we see in verses 12 through 17. So the doctrine of repentance uh, will be on our minds as we go through verses 12 through 17. And we will do so under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the call to repentance in verses 12 through 14. And secondly, we'll see the urgency of repentance in verses 15 through 17. So the call to repentance, verses 12 through 14, and the urgency of repentance, verses 15 through 17. So the call and the urgency. So let's first look at the call to repent in verses 12 through 14. Last time we saw the terrifying day of the Lord. That is, God's impending judgment that he's going to bring and just how terrifying it is. We see that the sun and the moon are going to be darkened. We see those, the earth is going to be shaken. Those things that provide us security shall be no more. We're going to see the relentlessness of Babylon's army. They just keep coming. You cannot break their ranks. They just keep coming. All the chaos that ensues with that as they enter at the windows like a thief. It is going to be a very terrifying day, and it was for the people of Israel in 586. But that is a type of that terrifying day when Jesus comes back, and we see that in Revelation 6. We see how people are going to want the rocks to fall upon them because it's going to be such a devastating and terrifying day for those that are not in Christ Jesus. But while there is still breath, while God tarries, while Christ tarries, while there's still breath, there's still hope. And so we can then talk about the need for repentance. And the terrifying day leads to this need for repentance. Is there a place we can go? And so the prophet, the Lord, by way of the prophet, calls the people to repent. He calls the people to turn. And we really do see what repentance is. And we see good images with the words that we see in the Old Testament and the words that we see in the New Testament. Well, the word that we see in the Old Testament is verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn. That is what repentance is, turn. You're walking one way, but you need to turn and go the other way. You need to change your mind and change your path and turn. Turn from your idols to the true and living God. To use the language of the New Testament, repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of mind concerning what sin is, and it's a change of mind concerning who God is. Now, we know from Acts 5, we know from 2 Timothy 2, we know from Acts 10, that repentance is a gift that God gives. What precedes repentance in the salvation of sinners is what's called regeneration. 
God must put that in their hearts, must take out that heart of stone, give a heart of flesh, but then they are then enabled, they are made willing in the day of of God's power. But repentance is that turn from, that change of mind concerning what sin is. And it really comes in light of this urgency idea. You know, if one is complacent, ah, sin's fine, sin's okay, everything's going to be great. No, sin is a terrible thing. Turn from your sin is what repentance refers to. We saw this in Hosea 14, as we see what one ought to say when one comes to God in repentance. And we see also what one ought to say in verse 17 of Joel 2 as well. But Repentance is to turn. The people are to turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. We have the outward evidence of fasting and weeping and mourning, referring to that visible part of repentance. It's important to highlight that the fruit of repentance is not necessarily the same as the repentance itself. The repentance itself is the change of mind. Repentance itself is the turning, but we see then this fruit of repentance in the life of the believer. And so sometimes we mistake the fruit of repentance for actual repentance. And actual repentance is this change of mind. Now, this turning to me with all your heart uh, is also mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, there we see Moses prophesying about the time when Israel is going to go into captivity. He prophesies about a time when the Lord is going to scatter them among the peoples. You see, Moses is a prophet. Moses knows that the people are not going to keep this covenant. Moses knows, because he's a prophet of God, that the people are going to violate this covenant. And so he prophesies about a time when they're going to go into captivity. And so we see that in verse 27 of Deuteronomy 4. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all of your soul. What is one of the key things about the new covenant? It is internal. What's the promise of the new covenant according to Jeremiah 31? God is going to put it in their hearts. He's going to put it in their minds. What's the key thing about Ezekiel? He's going to remove that heart of stone and or move that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh. That is one thing that's so much greater about the new is that God works internally in the hearts and lives of people. Because on our own, or according to the terms of the old covenant, we could not turn to God with all of our heart. We need to have that heart changed. And so a lot of what we see in Deuteronomy 4, and also where this is fulfilled with what we see in Joel chapter 2, is in the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is when they go into exile, according to Deuteronomy 4, they shall call on the Lord and the Lord shall hear them. It'll be in the latter days, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 4. And we know that the latter days come with Christ Jesus. The last days have come in him. They've been inaugurated in his coming and we are in the last days and so too were the apostles in the last days. Days because that messianic age has come 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So turn to me with all your heart, alludes back to Deuteronomy 4, which also then points ahead to that new covenant era. So rend your heart, uh, turn to me with all your heart, back in Joel 2, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Then he says, as he continues this important heart aspect in verse 13, so rend your heart and not your garment, return to the Lord your God. Now, it's not a disdain for the sacrificial system. We see in the prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, even though he talks about how the Lord desires a contrite heart and a broken heart, that is sacrifice. We also see in Psalm 51 that he's not against sacrifice. It's through that contrite heart uh, that, we, uh, that they, uh, he would offer sacrifice. And so it's not disdained for the sacrificial system. What it is, is against mere formality just saying the words of repentance without actually repenting, bringing sacrifice without actually having a changed heart, having this mere formality, this mere, uh, this mere outward repentance rather than true repentance, because true repentance really does come from the heart. True repentance does not blame shift. True repentance owns sin. We all have sinned against God. We all have sinned against one another. True repentance owns it. I have sinned. I have done this thing. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against man. We own the sin that we have. True repentance is one that comes from the heart, and it is wrought by God as it is a gift, according to uh, Acts 5, Acts 10, and 1 Timothy two. But even here, we're starting to see the prophecies concerning that, to rend your heart not your garment, return to the Lord your God. And notice the reason we can go to God, the reason we can return to the Lord. Remember, the Lord is the one whom we've sinned against. Remember, the Lord is the one whom Israel has sinned against. But here we see that he is the one that they go to. Here we see that we, he is the one that we go to. And so we see the reason we can go to him for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you've heard these terms repeated often. In fact, we saw that in Jonah. Remember, we kind of did things out of order. We started with Jonah, and now we're going back, and then we did Nahum, and now we're going back to Hosea. But I guess in God's providence, it's good we start with Jonah and Nahum. Because remember Jonah's plight and problem? Remember he is mad at God because he is gracious and merciful? Because God was so gracious and merciful to Nineveh, Israel's enemy. God was so kind to them. God is that God. And Jonah is mad. I, I know you're gracious, God. I know you will do this kind thing if they repent. He knows who God is, yet we see that he cares more about his plant uh, than he does people. And then we also know, saw this in Exodus 34. Now remember, Exodus 34 is in that context concerning the golden calf. Israel doesn't, wear Mo, don't know, doesn't know where Moses is. We, we don't know where he went. And so they instead decide to worship this golden calf. And that's when Moses intercedes, right? That's this, that episode is in view in Joel chapter 2. Even with the language that we see with the intercession, all this is in view. Because Moses appeals to a gracious God. You are a great, and God appears to him in that theophany 
and what who what is proclaimed who is proclaimed the lord lord god slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love i'm getting all the words mixed up but it comes right out of that he is merciful and gracious he is abounding in goodness who forgives he is that god and that is the god that we can appeal to because of who he is that he is the good god and certainly we know that jesus christ is that one with what we saw in john chapter 1 uh, as the word becomes flesh as the one who is beheld namely the one who is the son the one who is full of goodness and truth christ jesus is god and god is gracious and so we've seen some of these terms before for he is gracious it highlights that he hears our cries this is important for Joel. Uh, even with the locusts in Joel 1, what are the people of God to do? To cry out to God. What do the beasts do? They cry out to God. And if the beasts cry out to God, we ought to cry out to God. And he's gracious to hear us. He is merciful in that he dispels the misery of his people. Brethren, we brought sin and misery, or Adam brought sin and misery into this world, and we in Adam but God removes that misery. Why? In Christ Jesus, as he takes away our sins. He is gracious and merciful. Notice he's also long-suffering. He is slow to anger. And remember, he has been very patient with the people of Israel. He has been very long-suffering with the people of Israel. We see that he sent prophets to warn them, to tell them, to make sure they knew about this impending day. And what do they do? They scoff, they mock, they don't take his words. And so God has been very long-suffering with the people of Israel. And God has been very long-suffering with mankind for a very long time. We see that God has the, uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He gives temporal blessings. Now, temporal blessings do not save. We know that it is save, Christ saves we know that temporal blessings are a good thing, but they are not saving. But it shows that man is without excuse before this good God. Because God has been very good, and he is good, and we see his goodness in his long suffering. So he is slow to anger. He's of great kindness, abounding in covenant kindness. He is this God who will do what he says he will do. And then we see at the end of verse 13... And he relents from doing harm. This is accommodation language to us to further describe his compassion. To further describe his goodness that he relents from his wrath. God is not moved by us. But the point is he, do, he will not bring about the thing we deserve. That is what relenting highlights. And thankfully, brethren, he is not going to bring about what we deserve, namely everlasting damnation, because Christ bore it upon himself. And so we see that he is a good God, and he is pleased to, based upon his goodness, to not bring about that harm. He relents from doing harm. Now again, Exodus 32 is in view, right? Exodus 33 and 34 are in view. We see that God relents there, that God is... Uh, is gracious there. That's what the language of relenting highlights for us. And I do think verse 14 is instructive in this whole sort of discussion to highlight the fact that God is not moved by us. 
And certainly verse 14 tells us that. He is sovereign. Who, who knows if he will turn and relent? Who knows if he will do such a thing? Because the point is it's based upon his goodness, not based upon the strength of our relenting. Brethren, God is not moved by you and I, but God is pleased to repent because he is good, or sorry, pleased to relent because he is good and gracious. He is pleased to hear us because of who he is, not because of anything good within us. Who then knows if he will turn and relent? Again, God does not depend on the strength of our repentance. God does not depend on the strength of our faith. Sometimes we can do this, brethren. We can make our standing or perhaps our perceived standing based upon the supposed strength of our repentance. But brethren, it's not based upon my act, although I am the one who believes upon Christ and it's a gift. But where's our strength? The object. Our strength is Christ Jesus. Not whether or not I had this much sorrow or this much sadness in my repentance, but Christ Jesus. Weak faith is still saving faith. I must confess, brethren, the Puritans have a lot of wonderful things to say. Sometimes there is a lot, if you read them, you're kind of like, am I actually saved with how they talk about repentance and faith and all these sorts of things? Because it seems like you have to do all these things, have all these conditions before you can actually be considered a Christian. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. Turn from your idols to the true and living God. Not having, it doesn't matter how strong that is, but believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. I think Stuart nails it. He says, human repentance does not control God. Human repentance does not control God. People cannot force God to show them his forgiveness. They can only appeal to him for his mercy in not meeting out against them what they very well deserve. And thanks be to God, he has provided a way of salvation in Christ Jesus. He is the strength of our salvation, and we look to him by faith. Weak faith is still saving faith. That's what J. Gresham Machen said. Weak faith may not move mountains, but it takes an enemy and makes him a friend with God. That is what saving faith does, because Christ is the object of our faith. And so who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. It's highlighting that sovereignty. Who knows? Because God is sovereign. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The implication seems to be is that if one turns and we, if God is gracious and God is gracious, there's going to be a time of worship again. Because remember, we saw in 1.9 and 1.13 that they don't have any food for a grain offering. They don't have any food for a wine offering. They don't have any food for a drink offering. They don't have any food, but there's going to be a time of blessing again in which God will seek worshipers, in which they will worship the one true God. So it will be held out again. It'll be held out again even after it was withheld because they didn't worship God aright. They didn't worship him in a holy way. They didn't worship him in a way that is pleasing unto him, so he removes it. But in the new covenant, there's going to be worship again because God is good, God is sovereign, and God is free to do as he pleases. And thankfully, he is pleased to save sinners. Now, as far as 
application, we're going to talk about what further what repentance is. I'm just going to do a little bit of uh, exposition, not a whole lot, from our confession of faith. Chapter 15 deals with of repentance unto life and salvation. I think there's a good definition of what it is in chapter 15, paragraph 3, where they say, saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with a godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. But it is that sensible of the manifold evils, godly sorrow, praying for pardon. So it's this recognition of sin. It doesn't blame shift. It is an evangelical grace that God gives. But I do like how the Baptist divines distinguish between repentance unto life and repentance unto salvation. And the distinction is this. Repentance unto life is that initial turning. when It's that conversion, when we turn to the true and living God. And certainly we see the language of repentance in the book of Acts, which I definitely think Joel has Joel in mind, this calling upon God, this repenting, and God hears, although I think repentance there isn't necessarily what we see with respect to the doctrine, but it just highlights the whole act of conversion, turning from, turning to the true and living God. But we see that there is this initial, we will turn from our sin to the true and living God. That is repentance unto life. And so they say, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. But in our Christian walk, we still sin, right? I don't know about you, but I still sin. I still have remaining corruption. I still have struggles. And so we must continually repent, not unto life, but unto salvation. And it is not as though we've lost our salvation, but it is just that reminder of what we have in Christ Jesus. So they go on to say, where there is none that doth good and sinneth not, and the best of men may through power, the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God's people can fall into great sins and provocations, and they are still the people of God. God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. Brethren, in our Christian life, we must continually repent. We've believed upon Christ. We've looked upon him. There is mercy and forgiveness but we must continually repent. You want to know what to say when you need to repent? Read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51. That's after David kills Uriah, sins with Bathsheba. That's what we sang in hymn 415. God be merciful to me. Uh, Upon thy grace I rest my plea. We see plenteous in compassion thou. Blot out my transgressions now. He's appealing to the goodness of God. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That is after David does a vile, awful sin, right? And he appeals to the goodness of God. You sin against God, brethren, go to him and confess it. 
pray Psalm 51. Even as well, we see in 2 Chronicles 7.14, when Solomon is praying this prayer of dedication in the context of locusts, by the way, which we have locusts in Joel chapter 1, he says, if, any, if there's this locust uh, situation, they can cry out to God and God will hear them. If you are a child of God, if you've believed upon Christ Jesus, what ought you to do when you sin? Go to God. Cry out to him, seek forgiveness, and he will forgive you. Repent of that sin that you have done, and he will forgive you. So we must repent to God continually in our Christian life, and he will renew us. And even we must repent to our fellow brothers and sisters when we sin against them specifically. And brethren, if someone comes, has sinned against you, and they come up to you, and they say sorry to you, you know what you're supposed to do? Forgive them. Don't hold a grudge. Forgive them, just as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So repentance is important. It's still part of our Christian life, and thankfully we can go to our God who hears us. So that's the call to repentance. Let's then look secondly at the urgency of repentance. So the call and now the urgency. And certainly we see Uh, The urgent need of repentance in verses 15 and 16, we see the alarm sounded again. We saw the alarm sounded for that day in verse 1. We see the alarm sounded with those trumpets in the book of Revelation. There is this urgency that has arisen. It is coming. It is impending. What ought the people of Israel uh, to do? And so in this case, there is a message of hope. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's a message of fear and terror, but here it is a message of hope. What ought they to do? Excuse me. What ought they to do in light of this living hell, really, with the way uh, in which that day is going to unfold? Well, consecrate a fast. We saw that already in chapter 114. This is that, remember, this is that national fast. This is what Israel should do. Do they do that? Probably not. But what they should do is consecrate a fast, set apart a sacred assembly. They are summoned to cry out to the Lord God. The day is approaching. What do the people need to do? They need to go to church. (laughs) They need to go to church and cry out to God. What do they do when there are locusts? They need to go to church and cry out to God. What do they need to do when Babylon's coming? They need to go to church and cry out to God. What do we do when we see that day coming? Hebrews 10, we need to go to church and cry out to God. And so they call this sacred assembly. It is called gather the people, sanctify, set apart this congregation. This is a special day. This is an urgent day. This day requires something different than any other day. And let's be honest, the day of our salvation was a day that is unlike any other day. And we see this distinctness by those who attend. Verse 16, gather the children and nursing babes. It probably was the case, as one commentator said, that children, uh, suckling children, did not participate in the cultic observance. We see this in 1 Samuel 1 with Samuel. But they need to go. It is so urgent, they need to go. They need to be in the temple. But then we also see that a bride and groom cannot consummate their marriage because it's so dire. So we see in verse 16, Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. We saw in chapter 1, verse 8, lament like a virgin, guided, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. It's so bad 
There's going to be no time to be married in Joel 1. It's so bad that there is no time to even consummate the marriage. They just have to go to church. It is so urgent. They need to cry out to the Lord right away. That is how urgent it is in Israel. And so they go. And then the priests need to intercede. It all has to happen right now. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you need to believe right now. You need to look to Christ Jesus right now because Christ is coming back and we do not know when. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. Don't wait, don't tarry, look to him. They need to go right now. And so verse 17, what do the priests need to do? We see the priests need to lament at the day of the locusts and they need to repent, uh, lament here and repent uh, with this day of the Lord. So verse 17, this, these words of intercession, this urgent prayer, what do we say? Certainly Psalm 51, but also Joel 2.17. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. When Solomon prays his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8, it is probably here. It is between the people where the altar is and the temple where the Lord dwells. And so he is going to intercede and be mediate in between there. So go to that place of mediation and intercession between the porch and the altar. Here's what you need to say. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to a reproach. These are the people of your own possession. And Moses kind of says something similar in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, as he appeals to God's goodness. Here's your people. Here's your possession. Here's the people you brought out of the land of Egypt. And so the priest must do a similar thing. So he says, do not give them up that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? He's def they're appealing to the honor of God, appealing to who God is in his goodness, but also appealing to the grandeur of the Lord God most high. And Poole says, nay, these barbarous people will not so much consider our sins or justify our God, but they will reproach God. We did see that in Samson, right? In Judges chapter 16, they captured Samson. They're carrying him into the temple of Dagon. Look, we got him. Look, he's ours. Because they assumed that Dagon, their god, was mightier than Samson's god. And we know who is mightier than any other god because there are no other gods, and that is the Lord God Almighty. We see this in 1 Samuel 5 as well. The people of Israel treat the Ark of the Covenant like some golden holy horseshoe they think it's this rabbit foot this lucky charm we'll just bring the ark in rather than uh, appealing to the one that the ark signifies and so what does god do the ark leaves the ark goes into into uh into the land of the philistines and then we see that dagon is bowing before the altar or the uh, ark of the covenant because dagon is not a god at all and so why should they say among the peoples where is their God. And Moses does that in Exodus 32. Uh, why should the Egyptians say, did their God just bring them out into the wilderness then to kill them? You see, Moses is appealing to who God is and to his promises. And that is exactly what the priests are to do as well. It is an urgent time. There is an urgent need. And if we can use a New Testament illustration, 
We see this on the lips of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. As he is speaking to the children of Israel, the children of Israel have grown complacent in their sins, right? They've grown complacent in the fact that, well, we're, we're just the children of Abraham. Nothing bad can happen to us. Well, what does John say in verse 7? And he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. That'll welcome people, right? That's the first thing you say to people when they come into your church, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking to the children of Israel. He's talking to ethnic Jews. You see, the point is, especially in light of the new covenant, it, ethnic descent is irrelevant. It's faith in Jesus Christ. How do you flee the wrath to come, brethren? It is in Jesus Christ by believing in him. What does Paul say in Romans 10? I desire and pray that my brethren believe and be saved, that they be saved in Christ Jesus. So there is this urgent need to repent, this urgency that we see in Joel, this urgency that we see in Luke 3, and there is an urgency today. Christ is coming. We don't know when he is going to come. Believe upon Christ Jesus. And even though it is a terrifying thing to think about that coming day of the Lord, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is mercy and forgiveness. And for those that are not, another thing we appeal to is the goodness of God to forgive sins. And one of the wonderful things that I like about our confession as well in chapter 15 is paragraph 5. Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it, it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary." God is so good to forgive. And I love that line. There is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. And we'll close with Matthew Poole, who says something very similar. He says, none need to be, dis be discouraged as if it were too late to seek and hope for mercy. God will pardon the truly penitent and deliver them from eternal miseries. And it is possible that he may deliver from present temporal calamities also. If you obtain not all you would, you shall obtain enough to show that it was worth your while to seek God. He is merciful. He is forgiving. Believe upon him. You shall be saved. Believe now. The day is near. There is an urgency to repent. But let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we are thankful for the message of hope that we see in Joel 2. Thank you that you call your people to repentance. You call your people to turn to you with all your heart, to rend their hearts and not their garments. And we know that we could not do that by ourselves or in our own self, but we are thankful that you have uh, effectually called 
by giving new hearts that you've made us willing in the day of your power. And we're thankful that fa repentance is a gift. We are thankful that faith is a gift. And we're thankful that you teach us uh, what repentance is and what faith is. And so we are thankful it's not based upon the strength of our sorrow. It's not based upon the strength of our repentance, but the salvation that we have is based upon the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. And so may we remember that. May we always be assured in Christ. And we are thankful for the evidences of salvation that we have and for the fruit of repentance and for the fruit of the Spirit. But help us to always remember that it is Christ Jesus in whom there is life. We pray that any here today who do not know you, may they look to Christ and find forgiveness in him. And for any here today who might be sensitive about their salvation, may they know it's in Christ Jesus that there is mercy and forgiveness. And we are thankful that you do teach us the seriousness of our sins. But as we consider the seriousness of our sins, may it magnify your grace all the more uh, that we have such a God who forgives sinners. So thank you that you're the God who is uh, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. Thank you that you're the God who uh, relents from doing harm. And we're thankful that you are sovereign in this, that you are not moved by us, but you accommodate to us in your word uh, that we might further grasp uh, what you have revealed. So we pray today that tonight would have been a time of edification and strengthening for your people and for your saints. We pray that it would be the day of salvation for those that do not know you. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. So be with us now as we go into the world. And we pray these things.